So, um, I think a couple of years ago, I was reading from this book, Stillness Flowing. Is that correct? Last year. We have different estimates. <laughs> so I think it was the year before last. And uh, so we didn't finish the whole book. And I thought uh, it would be a very good opportunity to, um, on these daily readings, to explore more of Lumpur Chah's teachings. And also I thought um, as we go along, then um, from time to time I would uh, present one of the suttas and uh, where the sutta teachings sort of relate to the same kind of area. And to um, uh, so go a little bit back and forth, but but to have this uh, the remaining half, the remaining five hundred pages <laughs> of this uh, of this book to be our, our main uh, text for reflection this uh, this winter. So <clears throat> this is <coughs> not exactly where I left off, as I was going back and forth a bit last time, but I thought it would be a good. Um, place to begin with the um, in terms of, of our winter retreat time to uh, say be uh, looking at the meditation chapter or section which is called the heart of the matter and this is the second section called thorns and prickles the hindrances The immediate obstacles to the development of samadhi and wisdom are a group of defilements that the Buddha called the nivarana, or hindrances. He described them as, quote, overgrowths of the mind that stultify insight. Stultify means to suffocate or to obstruct or to, to squash, to suppress. So overgrowths of the mind that stultify insight. They are five in number. Firstly, karma-chanda, sensual thoughts. Secondly, viapada, ill will. Thirdly, tinamida, sloth and torpor. Uh, fourth, udacha-kukucha, agitation, guilt and remorse. And five, vichikicha, doubt and indecision. The Buddha made clear the vital importance of dealing with the hindrances as follows. And this is a quote from the Book of the Fives in the Anguttara. Without having overcome these five, it is impossible for a monk whose insight thus lacks strength and power to know his own true wheel, that means his true welfare, the wheel, the welfare of others, and the wheel of both, or that he will be capable of realizing that superior human state of distinctive achievement, a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. So that's slightly old-fashioned English. Uh, Wheel, uh, W-E-A-L, -E is um, uh, related to the word uh, welfare or health, well-being. Um, and so uh, what the Buddha is saying here is that without uh, overcoming the five hindrances, it's impossible uh, to know, to, to develop um, true welfare for yourself or for those around you. And will be, uh, and also it's not possible to develop uh that quality of insight, as he puts it here, that superior human state of distinctive achievement, a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. So to realize those qualities of stream entry and that, that depth of, of uh, awakening, uh, liberation, then uh, unless the five hindrances have really been uh, let go of, or abandoned, then that, uh, that kind of insight is impossible to establish. 
Elsewhere, the Buddha compared the hindrances to the baser metals impairing the purity of gold. And this is also from the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Fives. Once the gold has been freed of impurities, then it becomes pliant and wieldy and can be wrought into whatever ornaments one wishes. Again, there's a few classical English words here. Arjun Jayasara, I think, is plotting to improve everyone's vocabulary. So, <clears throat> pliant means you can bend it, it's, uh, it's uh, soft and can be shaped into different forms. Wieldy, so that it, uh, again, is something that is, um, has strength and can be used for various purposes. And it says, and can be wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T, that means to, to be made into a particular shape, like wrought iron, iron that's bent into particular shapes. So once the gold has been freed of impurities, then it becomes pliant and wieldy and can be wrought into whatever ornaments one wishes. Similarly, the mind, freed of the five hindrances, will be pliant and wieldy, will have radiant lucidity and firmness, and will concentrate well upon the eradication of the taints. Please excuse my taints. <laughs> Coming out of my nose. <clears throat> to whatever state realizable by the higher mental faculties one may direct the mind, one will, in each case, acquire the capacity of realization if other conditions are fulfilled. So um, uh, the mind free of the five hindrances uh, of uh, sense, desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, agitation and, uh, and doubt, then uh, uh, just like a, a, a piece of purified gold that can be shaped into any kind of ornament, it's like you can, when the mind is like that, you can direct it towards whatever kind of activity uh, you want. If you want it to be concentrated, then it can concentrate. If you want it to, to understand things, then it can be used for understanding things. If you want to use it to radiate kindness or compassion, then you can use it for that. Like having a, a good power supply, you can plug all kinds of different gadgets into it and they'll all, they'll all work efficiently with that, um, that particular power supply. The basic method for dealing with hindrances is to cultivate a mindful, balanced effort combined with positive regard for the meditation object to the extent that as yet unarisen hindrances do not arise in the first place. When that's not possible, and having become aware that they are caught in a hindrance, uh, meditators are taught to abandon it without regret and patiently return to the meditation object. Rather than immediately re-establishing attention on the breath, Lumpur, Lumpur Cha, taught that at that moment of recognizing the hindrance of what it was and letting it go, meditators should also acknowledge the distraction of uh, as uh, sorry they should also acknowledge the distraction as minor that means changeful, impermanent, unstable. By doing so, they introduce an element of wisdom into meditation that would gradually flourish as their meditation skills grew. So that phrase minor, probably well known to many people who spend time around this place, is uh, uh, my is the uh, 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 the Thai word for negative for no, uh, and nair is certainty. So minor means not certain, not a sure thing. <coughs> so here is Lumpur speaking. When something arises in your mind, no matter if it's something you like or something you dislike. Something you think is right or something you think is wrong. Cut it right off by reminding yourself, it's changeful. My name. Doesn't matter what it is, just chop right through it. 
Changeful, changeful. Meineh, meineh. Use this single axe to chop through mental states. Everything is subject to change. Where can you find anything real and solid? If you see this instability, then the value of everything decreases. Mental states are all worthless. Why would you want things of no value? So this is a, a simply put um, statement, but kind of <laughs> uh, one could just take that single paragraph and just sit on that for the next three months, really. In in many ways, that um, uh, because that uh, is a um, uh, both combines the quality of concentration. You're paying attention to what you're experiencing, whether it's a sound or a sensation. Or, a feeling of happiness and excitement or a feeling of sadness and alienation or um, whatever it might be. And <clears throat> then, so you're paying attention to what's there, so the mind is, is being trained to focus, to attend to what's present. But then also, as he says, it brings in the wisdom element of seeing, well, necessarily, this particular experience is in a state of change. And the quality of uncertainty is both insofar as it's not sure what it's going to change into. But also, the way that the mind judges something as beautiful or, 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 or ugly, pleasant or painful, you know, that is extremely dependent. So, um, say for example, uh, I've been down with this bug, and so up uh, uh, the last couple of days, food was pretty uninteresting to me. And as the bug is uh, waning in its influence, this morning, food was extremely interesting to me. So... <laughs> So is the food interesting or not? It's in in the perceptual system. So is food attractive? Well, it depends. It's my nair. It's not a sure thing. If you're sick and the body says, Ooh, no, thank you very much, then the food is not desirable. If you're hungry and the body is not sick, then the food is, uh, food is attractive. So this is a very simple um, mode of, of reflection. And those of us who've been around this place or... In uh, in contact with these teachings for some years, this is very very familiar territory. But it's one of those uh, those principles that if you actually take the trouble to apply it, it really does change the way that the world is appreciated. You know, and that where we get so used to telling ourselves the same stories, making the same judgments over and over and over again. And thinking the world is like this, or my mind is like this, or my body is like this, or this, this person is this way. You know, this person is very inspiring and attractive and interesting. This person is really irritating and upsetting and uh, and boring. Uh, and the mind takes those judgments and takes them uh, to be absolute truths. And just like it's uh, it's very obviously subjective and changeable with respect to food and, and illness, or or even just after you know. Uh, after you've eaten your meal, uh, I often point out how when you when you come in the sala and you're hungry, um, uh, whether it's a breakfast time or the meal time, then the smell of food goes, ooh, interesting, and the kind of the the feet you know fly across the carpet. You, you don't notice the carpet because your attention's on the servery. <laughs> and then, uh, but then when your stomach is full and you've had plenty to eat, then uh, the idea of more food is unattractive, or the smell of food is, is very unattractive. And so uh, probably everyone's had the experience of coming into a room after lots of people have been eating here, uh, say, into the sala, coming in at, say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and go, oh, this place really stinks of food. <laughs> Open some windows. This really... 
But what, what changed? It's the same smell, I would suggest, but it's a different nose. You know, the, the, the mind holds it in, in a very different way. So this uh, encouragement uh, of, um, of long pause uh, in the way that, you, that the mind deals with the hindrances is, uh, is very significant. As, um, as Ajahn Jayasaro puts it, um, at that moment of recognizing the hindrance for what it was and letting it go, um, so, you know, saying, uh, oh, I'm feeling really lazy or I'm feeling really dull. And then it's, it's that reflect, the reflective co- uh, quality of the mind that says, well, is that a sure thing? You know, this is the experience of dullness or the experience of laziness, but am I lazy? Is that, is that what's happening? Or, or this is exciting. It's like, well, okay, in this moment there's this experience of excitement, but is that a sure thing? Is this always exciting? What, what makes this something that is in, uh, sort of intrinsically pleasurable or good? And so then, as uh, uh, Lumpur Cha points out, then mental states are all worthless. Why would you want things of no value? That um, it undercuts, it sort of takes away that sense of oh, this is awful, or this is great, and it uh, it reveals that those judgments can only be partial truths; they can't be any kind of absolute quality. And it carries on for those struggling struggling with the hindrances and feeling discouraged at their lack of success. Uh, he gave the following encouragement. So Lumpur Cha gave the following encouragement. Even if your mind finds no peace, merely sitting cross-legged and putting forth effort is already a fine thing. This is the truth. You, can, you could compare it to being hungry and having nothing to eat except plain rice. You've got nothing to eat with the rice and you feel upset. What I'm saying is it's no good that you've got rice... Sorry, what I'm saying is it's good that you've got rice to eat. Plain rice is better than nothing at all, isn't it? If plain rice is all you've got, then eat it up. Practice is the same. Even if you experience only a very small amount of calm, it's still a good thing. So uh, this also addresses a, um, a very, very frequent theme and uh, it comes up over and over again in Lumpur Cha's teachings, both here and in uh, many of his other Dhamma talks, is the, the dangers of having specific meditation goals. Like when you, you sit down to meditate or you, uh, you go out on the walking path and or you know, you know, the, the retreat begins. Okay, this year winter retreat, right? Yeah, this is it. This is the breakthrough. I'm going to I'm going to crack it this time. And having specific goals, uh, it's not as though it's not wise to make effort or not useful to make effort. But having a particular uh, effect in mind almost guarantees that you will create the opposite, or at least something that is um, very disappointing will be will be at what what arises. And so that uh, Lumpur Cha was, over and over again, he would uh, encourage you, know, you making the effort, doing the work that's necessary to train the mind, but not get too fixed on the idea of where you're going. Just like if you're, if you're making a, a, a you know, walk through the countryside, you know, paying, pay attention to where you're putting your feet. You know, where are the potholes? Where are the rocks? Where are the brambles? Um, where you're putting your feet down, rather than just thinking about, you know, oh, I'm walking to Berkhamsted or I'm walking to 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 Ivinghoe Beacon or something, that um, it's very easy to fixate on a particular goal and then miss where your feet are landing. That's a very uh, easy analogy to make. And then you 
can then thereby trip over or scratch yourself up with with brambles or or um, twist your ankle on a rock and uh, and such like and and uh, you don't get where you where you want to go. So the emphasis is is in the in the process of making effort, keep the attention with uh, with the the present moment experience rather than getting lost in some sort of I want to get this this is this is where I'm going I've got to get this particular result otherwise. Um, my meditation is is no good. And back to Ajahn Jayasara. If the simple expedient of patiently returning to the object again and again was not working, then specific antidotes needed to be employed. There was much to be learned in the quest to transcend the hindrances. Lumpur advised looking on them as teachers or tests of wisdom rather than enemies. So he would often call them the five teachers or the, you know, the five Ajahns. Um, and uh, not in, not encouraging that that attitude of these are an enemy or a problem or something that uh, to to hate or to fear, but rather as you know, what what we learn from and uh, frequently quoted Lumpur Chars having said when uh, somebody asked him how he had developed so much wisdom, <laughs> they were really impressed by you know, how much he knew or how he could always give advice that seemed to be relevant to everybody that was, was there. So you must have studied the suttas for years and years. You must know the Abhidhamma back to front you know, to be able to give uh, such comprehensive uh, answers. And Lumpur Chao uh, would generally respond by saying, well, if I have any wisdom, it's because I had such a lot of defilements. And that uh, because I had a lot of hindrances, that's where I developed the wisdom. So that's the actual... Um, so learning ground is dealing with lust, and ill will, restlessness. I think the only one of the five hindrances he didn't specialize in was dullness, because the, the other four were also kind of red hot. That uh, he, um, uh, he didn't have any room for dullness in the in the mix. He was a very, uh, very, very lively minded person. So he had enormous amounts of, of sense desire, uh, a lot of ill will and anger. Uh, a great deal of restlessness and uh, Olympic uh, Olympic class doubt. He was a, a, a high grade doubter. So we'll get into some of his uh, advice on these areas. Um, uh, and the first one is sensual desire. But <coughs> before I go on, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I'm surprised by the contrast with other. Teachers who see the kilesas and go on and on about kilesas and fighting and combating and just kind of different approach to. Mm -hmm. <coughs> How do you explain the two different theories? Oh, uh, the kind of kill the kilesa, ka kile is the the uh, regular expression. Um, well, different people speak in different ways. I think um, everyone who's in the role of teaching. You look at what are the what the results are of what you say or how you approach things, and also you are using your own experience. So I think part of this is based on Ajahn Chah's own experience of trying to kill his kilesas, and then realizing that the harder he tried to kill them, the stronger they got, <laughs> and so that uh, he, for himself, uh, found that if he changed the attitude. Yeah, he knew he still needed to work with these restlessness and, and lust and aversion and so on. But um, he uh, he saw that if he changed the attitude and 
had a um uh, uh say a uh, a non-aversive non-contentious attitude towards him that the results were, were that much better for for himself and uh so it, it doesn't uh, negate the way that other people speak so that you say someone like Ajahn Mahabur is you know talking about getting in the ring and you know the boxing ring and smashing your calaces down if they get up and you smash them again until until they can't they can't ever get up and have to be carried out of the ring you know and uh because he had a, a lot of boxing in his background <laughs> and had a very sort of what they call pugnacious uh or um, aggressive mode of, of speaking but um i think it's always it's always good particularly with the forest tradition to be bearing in mind that everyone has their own particular uh, set of expressions and styles and not everything works for everyone and so that uh, so the kind of attitude i always encourage is one of of being ex- experimental you know trying things out and seeing what seeing what the results are so if you find treating your uh, your the hindrances as your teachers means that they keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger and take over realize okay <laughs> we need a little bit more oomph in this that there needs to be a, a bit more um uh say um hard, a bit more of a hard-edged attitude uh, because of seeing that the results of that um but it also i think um uh, particularly for for westerners but i think also generally in his teaching Ajahn Chah saw that if you talked about in terms of like killing your kilesas and conquering your your hindrances uh in order to to get get samadhi uh, he saw that a lot of people made themselves really miserable you know it's like uh, uh someone the other day um i think when i was at damaram it was before I, in, in bangkok i was there with lumpur sameto ajahn soko and uh, and ajahn viradama was there as well and and uh i think it was ajahn soko was was saying how yeah the postmaster would often say how um yeah yeah everybody else meditates when they meditate it makes them happier and when sameta meditates it makes him more stressed <laughs> you know not trying to 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 make fun of him well yes trying to make fun of him but <laughs> but just pointing out that you know you're you're approaching this in a in a very um say contentious or, or stressful way you know you're making the meditation into this this sort of chore that you have to do and and um so he would use the expression like say um the meditation is supposed to be a holiday for the heart and but if uh, you know, for sumato it's just it's a, a holiday you know he's he's making it a home for stress <laughs> so uh and cool and actually over time then the possumato learned learned the lesson but um you know the uh <coughs> if you're watching the effect of the way you talk uh, and the kind of example that you set on the people around you then if everyone is looking kind of stressed and grim and staring at the carpet you know then you're like, hmm there's, <laughs> there's a lot of tension in the air and if people are looking kind of bright and, and clear-eyed and uh, and more relaxed then you think, okay well that seems to be working if everyone's just sort of loafing around and and uh and and looking kind of too relaxed and uh and uh kind of put, putting out an aura of of just sort of laziness and sloppiness and then you realize okay you need to, 
to to uh, change the way you talk about things. So that it's a uh, it's a very much an organic process. Okay. Sensual desire. The first hindrance occurs through indulgence in thoughts bound up with the sensual world. The meditator, who is still unable to find satisfaction in meditation, tends to seek pleasure, warmth and distraction by turning to the world of the senses. This hindrance's most powerful expression lies in sexual desires and fantasies, but it also includes taking pleasure in memories or in imagination relating to any other aspect of the sensual world that the meditator finds attractive. Food, music, movies, sport, politics, any topic at all that is felt to be enjoyable by the one who dwells upon it. In dealing with this hindrance, Lung emphasized the protection of sense restraint. Eating little, sleeping little, talking little were made key principles for the Sangha at Wat Bapong. The mind was to be taught to avoid becoming engrossed in the general appearance or particular features of any sense object. It was not possible to simply turn off a habit of indulgence in sensual pleasures for the duration of a meditation session. There also had to be a constant effort to govern such desires in daily life. As the key condition for this hindrance is dwelling unwisely on the attractive aspects of sensual experience, the specific antidote lies in replacing it with wise reflection on the unattractive aspects. Sexual desire, being the most potent and disruptive expression of the hindrance, it's the one to which most specific remedies are applied. But it's also um, this uh, quality of a sense restraint, uh, the Pali for that is Indriya Sangvara. So the Indriya are the, the six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And Sangvara is um, the, the, say, um, the, the, Correct or the sort of balanced way of holding or or um uh, not being compulsive. So one of the ways I talk about uh, 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 or explain indriya sangvara sense restraint because again uh, sometimes Westerners take this a little bit too uh, intensely and just sort of feel like uh, I shouldn't hear and shouldn't listen to anything I shouldn't look at anything and become very stressed about it. So the in, the restraint of the senses, it's it's in a way learning how not to be reactive, so that you see something that is attractive. You don't feel like you have to take a second look or or, or ogle that, or something that that's unattractive. You don't have to get lost in aversion to it, or you you um uh, you hear a sound that you like or a sound that you dislike, or you taste some food that you like. So it's in a way training the senses to not uh, follow and not to be followed in a in a compulsive way, but um, learning to be um, responsive <coughs> rather than reactive. So that when you when you have some food that's delicious, you're hungry, and there's some delicious food, then there might be that oh wow feeling. Then sense restraint doesn't mean. So putting it down and, and uh, pushing the food away, but rather it means recognizing, oh, here's that uh, that feeling of, of attraction of like, ooh, that's great, that's delicious, and being uh, um, aware of that feeling, but not just following it compulsively. You're not trying to pretend that you're not having that, ooh, this is delicious feeling, but rather 
um, there isn't that kind of a, just a, a uh, unconscious or habitual pursuing of that. Or if something is unpleasant or, pay, unpay, or is uh, painful or difficult, rather than feeling like you've got to get away from it, you can't stand it, it's awful, it's unbearable, to, uh, in, in the same way, to not be... Um, so sense restraint, Indriya Sangvara, is then not re- reacting compulsively or, or, react, or in, a, in a kind of a uh, blind or automatic reactive way to that particular sound or, or whatever. So that it's uh, learning essentially how to respond rather than to, to react, not, um, not to be say, dragged around by our, our habits and, and compulsions. So within that, in that respect, it's good to know the things that that really move the mind. Say, food might be completely uninteresting and, and unimpactful to you, but you tend to get obsessed with how attractive uh, various people are around. Or it might be the opposite that you you find yourself um, you're no, you're not noticing the, the people, whether they, you know people are, are women or men or uh, attractive or unattractive, but food <laughs> or or sugar, or whatever, it's, uh, uh, is uh, incredibly appealing. And so get to, getting to know where we easily get lost is, is uh, part of the, um, the, 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 the training. So also, if you are aversive, um, then somehow, sometimes the whole way that we relate, if, if you have a, like what they call a dosa chirita, uh, a, a kind of an aversive nature, then the whole way that we relate to uh, the world can be complaining. You know, that any sense object is categorized to what's wrong with it. Right? So we, we we sort of develop a, a complaining attitude. If you have a, a, a lobaturita, a sort of greed mentality, then everything tends to be categorized in terms of how attractive it is, or how much you like it, or how much you want it, or how good it is. And so that, uh, obviously, um, the... Uh, not the mind is not sort of given over a hundred percent to being a, a, a an aversion type or a greed type or a delusion type, but uh, to get to know your own particular traits is very very important. So that if you see that you are a complaining type, like I remember one one actually he's an ajahn now, but when he was a he was a a, a layman, he went to visit a a monastery in the States and was just staying with this, this eminent meditation teacher and uh, he'd been there for three or four days and he realized that every time the, the, this Ajahn was talking it, uh, his, his, the, the main part, if not all, all of his, his conversation was about what was wrong with people or what was wrong with the world and, and uh, you know, being in America <laughs> So West Coast America, he uh, in in England, the English manner would never be to be so, so blunt. But after two, you know, two or three days, three or four days, he said, "Do you realize that everyone you talk about, you criticize? That you, you know, everything you speak about, it's always a complaint. Are, are you aware of that? It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, you're a meditation teacher, but it seems to be you're complaining all the time. <laughs> uh, that would be very hard for an English person to say. <laughs> Usually." But uh, <clears throat> and so, get to know your own qualities. Get to know your own your own habits, your 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 character traits. And again, so sense restraint isn't trying to make us not feel or not see or smell or taste or touch, 
trying to shut down the senses. Again, Lumpur Chao would emphasize that um, the the sense bases um, would, uh, in one particular Dhamma talk, is called uh, sense contact, the fount of wisdom. So he actually compares that. That's the, the source of wisdom is working with sense contact and seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and so on. But the, the restraint is that quality of non-reactivity, of not, not being compulsive or just whew, swept along by like and dislike. So then, going to his um, advice with respect to um, body contemplations to counteract sexual desire. Visualize the body as a corpse in the process of decay. Or think of the parts of the body such as lungs, spleen, fat, feces and so and so forth. Remember these and visualize these loathsome aspect this loathsome aspect of the body when lust arises. This will free you from lust. If you look at the human body and you like what you see, then ask yourself why? Investigate it. Look at head hair, body hair, nails, teeth and skin. The Buddha taught us to hammer in the reflection on these things. Distinguish them one by one, separate them from the body. Visualize setting fire to them or peeling off the skin. Do that until you become fluent. So this is a you know, very very simple and, and a helpful way to counteract <laughs> sexual desire. Also, it's um, an uh, equally valid and helpful way of reflecting on your own body and your own concerns about what you look like and uh and the the own your own sort of self image and to help counteract uh the habits of self view so uh, as I was mentioning at the the um, ordination procedures over the the weekend or last week um the uh the Buddha established that reflection on the the five external features of the body to be there right at the pabaja as you're going into the renunciate life then uh to help counteract self-view than to to look at the external sort of wrapping of the body and to, to dismantle it to de deconstruct that and to to see well what is it that we're so identified with well what are we that we're so attracted by i have such opinions about you know this person's attractive or unattractive or i, I look good i don't look good and uh, when you take the pieces apart you know head hair body hair nails teeth skin um, then it um, you separate them out. Then it, they um, they they kind of lose their power. Sometimes you actually see them in a in a in like a, a shopping street. You have like the tanning parlor, the the, the uh, nail parlor, and the the hairdressers, and the, you know usually you don't have a dentist there as well. But <laughs> it's a the all this of uh, focus on the external features of the body, and uh, one of the practices that Lumpo Cha used to do for himself, as he says, peeling off the skin. He would. Uh, I remember him talking about this um, when uh, I was there in Thailand many years ago. He said at the beginning of every sitting, he would imagine peeling off his skin and laying it out like a a mat in front of him, and then sort of picking out his organs and just sort of making a heap to to rejig the. Um, uh, the perceptions he had of his own body, and uh, and he would be 
quite frank about how he was he was very obsessed with how his how he, white he wanted his teeth to be how he, he was really proud of his his white teeth and then he said but then when they started falling out it was still white but it was not in my mouth anymore it's like <laughs> oh here's my beautiful white tooth damn you know, it's fallen out and uh, and so there's many dhamma talks he gave about teeth because he he had a lot of gum disease and, and gum problems and uh, I think uh, he had um, uh, I think it was 17 teeth he had pulled out all in one go he said okay I'll just get rid of the whole lot keep it simple I'll just get rid of the whole lot then I'll have false teeth that'll get rid of my troubles and he said uh, so I had 17 pulled out in one go and said five of them were still good <laughs> but uh, he said it, uh, the pain nearly killed him but, uh, so I wouldn't recommend that as a, as a uh, a way forward but uh, also he said it was a stupid idea because having false teeth then led to a whole array of different problems for the next 30 years of um, false teeth that didn't quite fit but um, when we are focusing on those particular aspects of, of appearance and thinking you know, I am this or this is what I want to look like this is what I don't want to look like or how we judge other people like oh that looks attractive or that looks uh, unattractive or oh that, you know that's, that's awful I, I hope I never look like that to catch that and, and use the same kind of methodology of, of taking things apart and uh, <clears throat> of, uh, as he would, he would also say like if you think someone's hair is very beautiful just imagine their hair in your, in your arms bowl and mixed in with your food, is it, is, it, is it still so appealing and attractive? And so simple ways of looking at it like that. So, oh yeah, right. A, that, that tells a different story if um, if we just sort of reshuffle the uh, the elements. Contemplation of the body has already been referred to as a meditation object in its own right as a preliminary exercise preceding mindfulness of breathing. Here it's employed as a means of hauling the mind back onto the middle path when it has strayed into the realms of the, the realm of the senses. <coughs> Once the hindrance has been abandoned, meditators may then resume their focus on their original meditation object. So any questions on, on sensual desire and um, a particular kind of practice? Yes, Vinny. Um, do you think it's important um, whether you do body contemplation on uh, somebody else or yourself first or not? Is it relevant? Um, well, as with most things, most things, I think it's useful to experiment. If you find doing body contemplation on somebody else means you get distracted for the next two and a half hours, then realize, okay, that's not a good idea. But, uh, you know, it's, it, because we can set off uh, with a particular idea, okay, I'm intending to do this, and then, you know, the, the mind gets uh, gets drawn away. So if, if that's the case, then recognize, okay, that's that's not helpful. Um, and then try a different, different tack. Also, not even just your own body or somebody else's body, but um, uh, just individual uh, aspects of the body like a, like um, taking a bone you know, just, uh, visualizing a, a bone or, or having a a, a a tooth on your shrine or, or a, a, a piece of an animal bone and to to see how that seems like something so other so external but then also 
say, well, when these ones seem very real and very much mine and what I am, but that's just a bone, like a sheep bone or something. So that uh, I, I encourage that kind of experimenting and seeing what what things have, uh, what effect things have. And it can be surprising. I often mention how uh, uh, when I was in Thailand uh, many years ago, I was at, at the Siri Ra. There's a, there's a um, uh, a police morgue um, where they do their uh, autopsies for um, uh, for accidents and and uh, injuries and so forth. And so the um, people who died so, you know, sudden deaths. And usually on a Monday, they're, they've collected the whole weekend's worth of bodies. So the, the sangha members would go in to to watch the autopsies on a on a Monday. And so I went in on this particular day and. Uh, so it was kind of it was really interesting that so there there were various different people who died um you know a guy falling off a piece of scaffolding yeah a little boy who choked on a on a peanut uh, while he was eating a woman who'd fallen off the back of a motorbike on the way to work you know they they had the sort of stories of because they were all kind of in their clothes I mean like they were just sort of had arrived and they were were sort of on the slabs, and then they the the people who were doing the dissections and the the autopsies were sort of telling us what they knew about where all the different people had come from, and uh, and so the you you you'd think that the so seeing someone's skin being peeled off or the body being chopped into bits or the or the, the top of the skull being sawed off and the brain being taken out or someone's liver being uh, examined that would be the thing that was that was most impactful, but uh, and you know those those things are, are, are kind of uh, do have a strength, or, you know, and they seeing a body being dismantled and then put back together again, and sewn up, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, strangely enough, what I found more impactful was that the 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 Anicca Sanya, the, the the perception of impermanence of like, well, when that guy put that t- his t shirt on. That morning, he didn't realize that was the last T-shirt he was ever going to wear. You know, when when that woman painted her fingernails, she didn't realize that was the last time she was going to do her nails when she fell off the back of the motorbike. You know? <clears throat> the the and little things like that was like that was for some reason that's what hit me more than seeing the 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 smell of the 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 dead bodies or the the organs being dismantled. It was like, oh my goodness, you just don't know when that moment's going to come. And how the it was the sort of everydayness, the kind of when that when that lad sort of sat down for breakfast and was just sort of tossing back some peanuts to before his school you know before his school day or whatever, then he didn't realize that day when he he got up and put his t-shirt and shorts on, that was the last time he was going to get dressed and that was what you know he would be he would be dying in. So it was uh, that kind of. Um, uh, there's a range of things that that affect us, or can really sort of reach the heart in terms of body contemplations, and so it's good to. Uh, so I was surprised by that, but uh, but then since then, <coughs> I I thought well, cause since that had such a big impact, then I think that's a good approach to take to kind of to be to be recollecting. You know, when I. So if I'm shaving my face in the mirror in the morning, I might think this might be the last time I ever shave. I ever need to use a razor. Could be. 
when I'm clipping my nails, this could be the last time I ever have to cut my nails. Or eating a mouthful of food, this could be the last potato I ever eat. And so, um, uh, I think it's it's helpful for each individual to explore and see what the, the things are that really affect you. And to kind of, in a sense, go around our normal defenses and, and bring that sense of, oh my goodness, right, this is the fact. And ch- that really bring about that change of perception and, and break up our complacency. Because that's what, um, we have a kind of forgettery uh, as, a, as a, 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 a filter that makes us forget that we're all going to die. That we that that sort of edits all that out, and so I, uh, frequently I mention this. Uh, so when you come into a room full of people, like say coming here for the Dhamma reading, yeah, how many of us came into this room and said, "Oh, we're all going to die one day"? <laughs> it's possible, but it's, uh, no, the, the mind goes to, "Oh, this is the, the first of the Dhamma readings for the uh, the winter retreat." Yeah, this person I know, that person I don't know, and so on and so forth. But to to counteract that forgettery and to help the, the mind to be seeing through the, the, the superficial characteristics and to, to see how oh well, this configuration is attractive. And if that if something changed, if there was the ears weren't on the sides where they were kind of on top and that you know one was one ear was on top of the head and the other was on the chin. It wouldn't be so. It wouldn't be so attractive. Like really nice ears, but just in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, so that you know to ex, to experiment and and, uh, and say, like or like Ajahn Chah saying, if if you like, if you think someone's hair is attractive, just imagine it in your in your food, and then see what happens. So the uh, to experiment with those kind of um, ways of of tweaking the perceptions to. You know, if you if you if you see someone and you think, oh, that that person's really attractive, and then you think, well, I wonder what the kidneys look like. The kidneys are not usually something that sort of float people's boats, or, to, or a pancreas, or a, you know, a lung. Like that, no one really gets too excited about somebody else's lungs. But, uh, the, the, actually, I don't know if it's in this book, but Ajahn Chah said that sometimes when you're going through these 32 parts of the body, you know, some of the monks, their mouths start watering. You know, ooh, <laughs> liver and kidneys. And, uh, he said, uh, <coughs> not with human, not in terms of human flesh, but just sort of the, <laughs> just you know, they're getting, they're getting a bit hungry in the evening. And oh, you know, liver, mm, kidneys, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Kind of the saliva starts to flow, so and you know, and, and Lumpo Cha would he would say that kind of thing because that's what he would have experienced when he was a, a young monk. You know, that uh, those kind of he would have noticed that in himself from time to time. So, ill will, got time for a bit of ill will, <laughs> always time for some ill will. Ill will is conditioned by ungratified desire. Interesting point. Its occurrence in meditation is often based on an obsession with things or people uh, that are not doing, saying, or being the way we would prefer. 
The mind picks up a rankling perception or memory and broods on it. So rankling, another good Ajahn Jayasara word, so rankling means kind of irritating or annoying or... I don't like that kind of a feeling. So it's increasing everyone's vocabulary. Take notes. A rankling perception or memory and broods on it, like takes hold of it and, and uh, keeps, keeps it a, in a tight grip. In Jack Cornfield's notes from a session of question and answers, Lumpur is asked for advice in dealing with this hindrance. How about anger? What should I do when I feel anger arising? Lumpur responds, You must use loving-kindness. When angry states of mind arise in meditation, balance them by developing feelings of loving-kindness. If someone does something bad or gets angry, don't get angry yourself. If you do, you're being more ignorant than they are. Be wise. Keep compassion in mind, for that person is suffering. Fill your mind with loving-kindness as if he were a dear brother. Concentrate on the feeling of loving-kindness as a meditation subject. Spread it to all beings in the world. Only through loving-kindness is hatred overcome. That's a quote from the Dhammapada. Uh, <coughs> hatred is never conquered by hatred. Hatred is only ever conquered by love. That's, uh, this is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. Sometimes you may see other monks behaving badly. That's other monasteries, of course. <laughs> would never happen here. Sometimes you may see other monks behaving badly. You may get annoyed. This is suffering unnecessarily. It is not yet our Dhamma. You may think like this. He is not as strict as I am. They are not as serious meditators like, they are not serious meditators like us. Those monks are not good monks. This is a great defilement on your part. Do not make comparisons. Do not discriminate. Let go of your opinions and watch your mind. This is our Dhamma. You can't possibly make everyone act as you wish or to be like you. This wish will only make you suffer. It's a common mistake for meditators to make, but watching other people won't develop wisdom. Simply examine yourself, your feelings. This is how you will understand. So Lumpur's rule of thumb was look at yourself 90% of the time and other people 10% of the time. That's 10% for everybody, so... So 90% just for one, and the other 10% over everyone else, everyone else around you. So uh, that was a basic uh, encouragement. And uh, <clears throat> that is something that can easily happen in monasteries. You, people can spend an incredible amount of time, as I said, complaining about all the other people that, that they live with. And, um, and also being right, you know, having good reason to complain. Uh, but as uh, Lumpur Cha famously once said to to the young Arjun Sumedha when he was complaining about a, a, a monk's behavior, he said, you were right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. You, know, that you had your facts correct. Yeah, that monk was, it was a, someone who was very uh, noisy, very uh, loud and um, uh, disruptive in their, in their speech patterns in particular. And Ajahn Chah said, yeah, you're, you know, the, the things that you criticized him were correct. He actually does that sort of thing. But the way you, you gave him feedback yeah, and really shamed him in front of the whole Sangha, then that was not skillful. That was not in accord with Dhamma. That, so that, um, yes, you had your facts right, but you were coming from a very yeah, righteous and, and aggressive um, and um, conceited place. And so 
the effect of that was that particular monk you know, ran away and was never seen again at Wobapong. And so that um, even if you're right, it doesn't mean to say that, <laughs> that uh, you should therefore uh, act on your own particular judgments or impulses. Then, okay, there might be these things that someone is doing that are inappropriate or harmful or, or confusing or difficult or irritating. Okay, so what is then the best way to work with that rather than immediately complaining or criticizing or shaming them in public to then to think, okay, this is causing a lot of difficulty, not just for me, but for other people now. So how can we address this and uh, in, in a skillful way? So it, you're both right in fact and also right in Dhamma, that the, you're, you're not just overlooking someone else's uh, behavior if they are um, you know, doing something really inappropriate or destructive, but you're considering, you're using that reflective wisdom. Okay, so this being the case, what's the best way forward here? Rather than just, you shouldn't be that way. Because often what's motivating that is, I want you to be different, so I'll be happy. If you weren't, if Tan Pasada wasn't like the, way, like the way he is, then I would be happy. I'm just using it as an example. If he was different, then I'd be happy. So therefore, you should change, so I'll be happy. I don't even really care about you or your feelings. But you should be different, so I'll be happy. And that's a bit of a generalization, but sometimes when we we reflect on that, we look at that, we say, oh yeah, that's actually, uh, it's it's all about me and what I'm feeling. And so what, where's that other person coming from? And so Lumpur Cha's uh, comment here is, um, yeah, you can't possibly make everyone act as you wish or, or, or be like you. This wish will only make you suffer, and that, and also that, as he said, that um, keep compassion in mind for that person is suffering, and that's that's often the thing that we appreciate. We appreciate in time. To often take, <laughs> could take weeks, months, or years to to get to that point to realize, oh, that person, well, they must be really in a, a difficult state of mind to act in that way or to speak in that way, and we can eventually find a place of, of compassion. It doesn't mean that we might condone or go along with their actions, but you can have that sense of, of empathy or compassion for, for where they're coming from. Although it makes sense for meditators to seek the most supportive environment for practicing meditation, there is almost always something other than... Oh, sorry. There's almost always something or other that the mind, if it wishes... Sorry. <laughs> There is almost always something or other that the mind, if it wishes, can latch onto with aversion. When meditators complained about external conditions disturbing them, Lumpur would reply that the problem did not lie in the condition. Conditions were just doing what conditions have always done, and always will do, arise and pass away. The problem arose, he said, because the meditator was disturbing the condition. In other words, it was the meditator's aversion to the condition rather than the condition itself, that was the true hindrance to meditation. Often the hindrance of ill will occurs as a dissatisfaction or frustration with the meditator's practice. Meditators can become aggravated by their inability to progress as fast as they hoped, angry at the particular problems that arise, resentful of physical pain that makes it hard to focus. They dwell on the things that they don't like again and again until a deep furrow is dug into which their mind throws itself repeatedly. 
Meditation itself can become an object of aversion. A frightening experience or strong painful feelings while sitting may make the mind resist continuing the practice. At this stage, meditators look to fill their time with every possible activity except meditation. Again, that would never happen here, would it? Unheard of in these monasteries. It's a joke. (laughs) There's a a lot of... um, Secondary, non-formal meditation activities that go on in a, in a monastery like this. At this stage, meditators look to fill their time with every possible activity except meditation. When affected by this hindrance, Lumpur encouraged his disciples to keep returning to the basic principle enshrined in the Four Noble Truths. Suffering arises through craving, and in this case, the root problem lies in the desire not to have, not to be, not to have to experience the I don't need this mind. Then Lumpur says, Your mind is chaotic because of craving. You don't want to think. You don't want to have anything going on in your mind. This not wanting is the craving called Vibhava Tanha. The more you desire not to think, the more you encourage thoughts. You don't want the mind to think, so why do the thoughts come? You don't want it to be that way, so... Why is it? Exactly. It's because you don't understand your mind that you want it to be a certain way. While Lumpur emphasized this understanding of craving as an antidote to this hindrance, the suttas recommend meditation on loving-kindness. By its systematic development, thoughts of kindness and benevolence are able to replace thoughts of anger and resentment. Interestingly, this meditation was not one that Lumpur greatly encouraged for monastics. He considered it to be a risky practice for a celibate monk or nun as the pure emotion of loving-kindness could easily morph into more sensual feelings. Morph meaning to, to change or to kind of mutate, to alter into more sensual feelings. Also, monastics who practiced loving-kindness meditation diligently often became very attractive to the opposite sex, which could also jeopardize their monastic vocation. The brief way that Lumpur would put that is... a. Uh, um, too much meta leads to having babies. <laughs> it's the brief version. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections on your will? Yes. Hi, um, you mentioned, uh, or rather, you mentioned how Charles um, said that ninety percent of yourself. What is the object of ill will is more yourself? Uh-huh. So, what would be the recommendation there? Um, well, there's, there's various different approaches. Um, and again, I, I encourage people to experiment. But um, So, what's your name? Katie. Katie. So, one very simple... Um, kind of uh, practice slash thought experiment is uh, assume that Katie is your friend. You don't need to have a name. Katie is your friend, and your friend Katie comes to you and says, I'm a terrible person. I'm really awful because of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And when your friend Katie comes to you and says, why is she such an awful person? Uh, And you uh, listen to that list of all those things that are bad and wrong, 
what is the immediate response? To notice what's the immediate response that arises when your friend Katie comes and tells you. Exactly. But the the. But it's an uh, it's an interesting uh, it's kind of thought experiment. And so if you try it out, so if your friend Katie came to you and said, I'm a really terrible person, I don't deserve any kind of kindness or love or anything good in life because I'm like this and like this and like this, then you know, if you articulate that, then just notice what happens in your heart. It's immediate sense of compassion and forgiveness. Like, it's not that bad, or don't be so hard on yourself. And that's uh, it's almost invariably the case. Uh, you know, that I've, I, I've talked that about that with with people for probably 25 or 30 years now. And no one I've ever suggested that to has has ever had the feeling of, yeah, right, let me tell you another thing. (laughs) (laughs) Let me add to your list of all the the, the wrong. It's usually if you step out of your own shoes and look at your life from the outside, then it's a very different story. And uh, there's um, uh, a a story that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often tell of how he actually went to Ajahn Chah one day and said, you know, I think I should leave. I think I should disrobe and, and leave Wat Bapong because I'm such a horrible person. You know, my mind is just filled with all this kind of angry. Uh, if I'm not angry, I'm jealous. If I'm not jealous, I'm lustful. You know, it's just this kind of seething mess of horrible kilesas. I feel I'm just polluting the atmosphere here and just, uh, I'm making a, it's a terrible bad karma, just living in this monastery, eating alms food and generating all this this kind of evil mind states and so terrible i'm such a terrible person and lumpur just said to him sumedo if you were really as evil as you you think you are you wouldn't even want to come anywhere near a monastery let alone be a monk you know sumedo you're a good person otherwise why why would you want to be around goodness you know why would be why would buddha dhamma be attractive to you and and he said it's uh, hit him like a ton of bricks like oh Right, yeah, I do like goodness. <laughs> but he was so focused on the, the, the faults that he was not seeing anything else. And that um, those wholesome and skillful qualities were also screened out. Well, they don't really matter. That doesn't really count. That doesn't, that's not worth anything. What really matters is I'm so jealous or so angry. And so uh, th- uh, that was so astute of Lumpur Chah to point that out. So, you know, if you were really so horrible, you wouldn't even come near the gate of the monastery. You would, you would avoid a place like this altogether. But you, you, you know, you've been drawn here. You're a very committed monk. You know, you love Buddha Dhamma. So, how could it be that you're, 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 you know, that the story you're telling yourself could be true? So, that, you know, to to use that sort of reflective ability to explore it in that way. Okay, I think that's enough for today.